You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Greg Elder, who is the Chief Historian for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And this is the continuation of a semi-regular conversation with DIA, discussing their role in providing intelligence for decision makers at the Pentagon, on the battlefield, and in Washington. Today, however, will be special, a Halloween week spy cast. We're going to focus on DIA's and some other members of the IC's research into the paranormal. Psychoenergenics, ESP, remote viewing, telekinesis, telepathy, Project Grill Flame, Project Center Lane, Project Sunstreak, and eventually Project Stargate. We'll even have a very special dramatic reading of one of the psychic sessions in the middle of the podcast. So this should be a lot of fun. So welcome back, Greg. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me again. Love it. So this is a fun time to be doing this because some of this stuff has only been declassified for a short time period. So you at DIA and other agencies are really getting a first crack at putting some of this information together for the public. Yeah, so the the CIA actually initiated a lot of these initial kind of what we would call paranormal um, studies within the intelligence community. They actually were the ones to conclude this as well, and so it's it's fitting that they're the ones who put out uh, the bulk of, of information. They put out you know over eleven thousand documents. There's more than eighty thousand pages of information that have been released on on these programs, and I would encourage readers to go look at it because it's not only it's fun Halloween stuff. But it's amazing the type of, of, of information that you would find related to these programs. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Stranger Things and Stephen King and things like that. So when I started looking at these, I immediately you know, kind of thought like, ooh, really spooky, kind of strange. Like, why on earth would the intelligence community be doing these things? And what I found in doing all of the research on this for some, for some work we're doing internally um, was that it's really a lot more fascinating than just, just, just Hollywood. You know, I went down the rabbit hole preparing for this podcast tonight and went, oh, let me go see what I can get on CIA's website on Project Stargate, because that's what they called it in the end. And it was dozens. And I basically had spent about two hours reading and realized that I'd only gotten through the Bs and was alphabetical of the documents that had been released. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be days and days and days. And there was stuff there on poltergeist research and stuff there on looking at other countries and what they were doing. And it's just you could really spend a month going through just what CIA released on, on these projects. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, the first, the first question that always comes to my mind on something like this is how, how on earth do you even begin 
looking at this stuff. Is there, you know, the kind of thought process I had when I started looking at this is, is there a mad scientist kind of sitting in the intelligence community behind some closed doors, you know, thinking, wow, wouldn't it be really cool to, 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 to be able to look at the paranormal and spend a lot of money doing it and be paid by the government? Uh, and, and, and that really is, is not the case at all. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, there were a whole confluence of different things happening both in the United States, and that had been going on for decades, um, in the Soviet Union that kind of all came together and, and made, this, made this happen. I mean, here in the United States alone, we had started the parapharmacology uh, 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 analysis, like actually looking at how drugs could work to fix human condition, like human mental issues. Um, Dr. Oliver Sacks, for instance, you'd see him in the movie Awakenings with, uh, with um, Robert De Niro. And this is a person who essentially brought a catatonic person out of, out of his catatonic state to a regular life. Now, he fell back into catatonia, but at the time, that was considered a really revolutionary type of, of, of thing. How did that happen mentally? Uh, we have LSD research going on. Right, Something MK that, Ultra and yeah, all that. Some, some squirrely stuff with that, but neurotropic drugs were being reviewed. In the 1950s, subliminal messaging was being put into commercials and the American public like freaked out. Like, why are commercial businesses trying to make us buy their stuff through subliminal messaging? Um, Stanford Research Institute and their physics department was already looking at remote viewing. And for those of you who have seen Stranger Things, that's like uh, the character Eleven actually going from her, her, her existing state, actually putting herself in a room or some other place with other people and listening in, and listening in on their conversations. So there had already been research going on on that as well. Uh, there were research documents that said that ESP was proven beyond chance at that time, that they had actually established that uh, extrasensory perception was like a real, a real thing. And then in 1969, para parapsychology was actually accepted by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Right, so and the AAAS doesn't mess around. I mean, that's, that's about as important a body as it gets when it comes to recognizing science. Yeah, so this is recognizing like real science. science. Okay, yeah. but, but then the bigger thing for the intelligence community, for us, wasn't just looking out into our own kind of environment and seeing, well, there's some interesting research being done by our own people in the West. The thing that really brought this together was the fact that for decades the Soviet Union had been spending a good deal of money and effort on, on, uh, on the paranormal type of environment and in the 1960s really stepped it up and were spending tens of millions of rubles or millions of dollars every year to try to do research on a whole bunch of things. And these were being done at more than 20 different centers in the Soviet Union. Some of them really, you know, really well known, the USSR Academy of Sciences, Moscow University, really important in terms of like the human rights issue, the Serbsky Institute, where they were doing human, human testing on some of this stuff, really nasty stuff. And from an intelligence perspective in 1972, DIA, um, and our medical intelligence folks in the Army put together a 177-page assessment of what the Soviets were doing. And the really scary part of all this was that they were using humans, they were testing on plants, thousands of tests, um, on a range of different fields. So they were really specifically looking hard at the electromagnetic and magnetic fields, like trying to explain the paranormal uh, through general like, real scientific analysis and treating it like we all know that there are things out there that we can't explain. There, there just are. And we want to be able to look at these and try to understand them not 
because they're paranormal, but because maybe there's some sort of scientific edge that we can get, some type of electricity or mm -hmm. some type of, of um, bio, biological uh, thing out there that we can use to, to advance our capabilities. Um, one of their big doctors over there said, the discovery of the energy underlying telepath telepathic communications will be the equivalent to the discovery of atomic energy. And it's urgent that we throw off our prejudices on looking at this type of thing. So the Soviets were looking at particles, hypnosis, autosuggestion, psychokinesis, uh, extrasensory perception, dream state, clairvoyance, right? Clairvoyance, right? Uh, precognition, uh, light flashing, like looking red light strobes and, and what that could do to, to the human mind. Uh, synthetic mimicry, um, sensory deprivation, telepathy, tunneling, tachyon, just all of these incredible things. And they were spending a lot of money at all of these different uh, institutes to do this. And we said, well, why would they be doing this? Well, one thing in the Soviet Union is these aren't done by, like in the United States here, commercial mm -hmm. uh, industry. This is being done all by the government. And from a military perspective, it could be used, and there's some real Manchurian candidate type stuff here, which is, which is what makes this fascinating too, right? So morale lowering, confusing the enemy, creating anxiety and fatigue, persuading your enemy to think a certain way. Uh, it all comes down to psychological warfare and building kind of what we, what we in these intelligence assessments were calling a super spy, like somebody who, who, who you could, and POWs were looked at as potential people who you could do this with, just like Manchurian candidate right. stuff, get them to turn into super spies to go back and conduct intelligence operations against the US. So we were looking at all these things and saying, my gosh, like they're they're not these aren't like like backroom scientists looking at this. They're real, the cream of the crop of the Soviet scientific um, uh, 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 academia are looking at this with the actual military and the KGB. And what's more, the reports that are coming at coming out indicate that they are seeing some successes, uh, and that was troubling. Right. Well, I, you mentioned that DIA got together with your medical intelligence group. I read also the Surgeon General of the United States was part of this as well, and kind of gave you the top cover, you being the DIA, the top cover to actually start looking at this much deeper than you would otherwise. Yeah. Well, and and the uh, so it wasn't just medical intelligence too. The U.S. Uh, Army's medical research um, uh, USAMRID program was behind it. CIA was funding this. There was NSA funding behind it as well. Um, and one of the really significant players outside of DIA was uh, the Army uh, Intelligence and Security Command, INSCOM, who oversaw the program independently and then with DIA for a while. And then when, when it became such a big program that there were so many consumers of the information that the, the DCI wanted to make it a national level program, then DI took it over entirely. Um, and, that, and DI oversaw the program for the majority of its, of its life. But there, this wasn't a, um, an independent intelligence organization uh, keeping this in special access programs, although it was a special access program, but it wasn't kept behind closed doors. And the people who had visibility into this program and were approving it, uh, were secretaries of defense, mm -hmm. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the directors of Central Intelligence. Uh, so, for instance, Stansfield Turner, uh, when he was at CIA, was 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 well informed and in writing up on things like this. Uh, George Bush, as both as within CIA, but then also as the vice president and president, um, all had visibility into the programs that we're going to discuss, 
And and the other thing is, so a congressman as well, but these aren't also just politicians or intelligence people who, like in the movies, are looking for that secret warfare type of, of thing that's going to give us an edge. Uh, there's some real scientists who are looking at this. And one of the largest advocates for the entire program that we would see go, transitioning from just looking at what the Soviets are doing, that kind of intelligence perspective into the adversary, but operationalizing a program ourselves to, to be able to use this remote viewing type of capability um, was DIA's Jack Verona, who was the director of science and technology um, within our agency at the time. And he's, he's one of our torchbearers. If you came to DIA, he's one of our, our true heroes, one of the people who we, we have in our Hall of Fame, so to speak, because of all the different things that he did as a scientist in, in furthering U.S. intelligence capabilities through science and technology. So it's a really fascinating uh, uh, background of people and organizations who are involved in this program. I think it's easy right now to kind of dismiss this as kind of mumbo-jumbo and silliness because... There's not a lot of this in the kind of civilian environment right now. Again, I always like to try to put anyone in the shoes of the historical actors that we're talking about. That's kind of like my, my way of thinking historically is, you know, forget hindsight. Don't look at them back from 2019. Think of how it is in the 60s and 70s. And in this case, I remember growing up and my father was about as down the road, middle guy, you know, no nonsense. 100% worked for the federal government his whole career, somebody that just never lied and was very much do things right way, do things according to the rules. They'd call him a square in the 1960s. He was 29 years old at Woodstock, and he's like, I would never go there. That's whatever. You know, he's, he is the 1950s growing up guy. But on the bookshelves growing up was an entire row of astral projection books, an entire row of parapsychology books, an entire, you know, it was just, that was the mentality at the time because these were things that were hot in broader culture about trying to understand how these different paranormal phenomenon could actually be harnessed by everybody. And one of the, one of the interesting documents I saw was a, 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 a factual statement. You know, it wasn't even kind of parsed. It was said that everyone has this ability a little bit. The whole idea of this program as we're about to shift into the idea of kind of operationalizing this was to take people who are better gifted than others in it and train them up. It's almost like everybody can throw a fastball. We're going to get you from your 30-mile-an-hour fastball to a 91. The fact that at the time, there was a belief that all of us were walking around with the ability to remote view and do ESP and all this other stuff. Yeah, so the you know, we, we've all heard of that person who, who gets that queasy, quirky feeling that, that one of their family members dies, and then you know the next day they find out, they get the phone call and say the family member died. And we've heard those those stories before. What the research was showing, and so in 1972, CI actually began the Scanate program, which was, which was to do some initial basic research on these paranormal type activities, the whole range and spectrum of them. Uh, and what they found, they were able to throw out a, a whole number of the different things the Soviets were doing because we saw, the intelligence community saw, and CI saw no real valid use to them. So for instance, um, uh, tele and psychokinesis, actually moving things with your mind, the mind over matter, they found no evidence whatsoever to continue any research on that type of thing. So, you know, they're so looking at those... So we can't get the force, we can't grab the remote control from across the room? And... I've, I've tried to, to grab my whiskey bottle with my mind many times, and I haven't been able to get there yet. But they found that those types of things weren't working. But they also found 
um, that, and, and we're going to talk a lot about the remote viewing because that's the one thing that they found actually really does that there, the, the, every single report that you see, and there are multiple reports done to actually check the validity of the research and the analysis and the work that was being done. And when you talk to all the scientists and, and who came out and talked about this, is the remote viewing was something that was provable. Uh, it was something that was beyond chance, the ability for some people to actually kind of see and, and get insight into things happening all the way on the other side of the planet. They found distance doesn't matter. So you could be sitting right here and all of a sudden have, have an ability to see something going on uh, in Russia. And the number of success stories that we saw make it, make it kind of difficult to, to disprove that. Um, but CIA began in 1972 looking at remote viewing. They initiated, they started with 10 targets. We're gonna, we're gonna have a person sit down and they, they picked a person who was already at Stanford doing um, heavy research on this named Ingo, um, Ingo Swan, who was already a proven kind of uh, person who was doing, doing remote viewing. And, and they gave him and a couple of other people 10 targets that, to look at. And what they found was, was uh, first of all, uh, if you gave locations, coordinates, coordinate analysis, if you gave a person coordinates and gave them just the basis, basic little bit of information just to be able to help guide what you're looking for, you don't want to give them too much information because then if you start tipping a person off to what you want, right. they find that, that a person will start making stuff up. But if you gave just some basic information on these initial 10 targets, um, they had seven successful hits out of the 10 times one neutral and one that was entirely a, a miss and then one that they couldn't develop any any results on um seven hits so they they started saying we really need to to look at this forget about all of the other different things the soviets are looking at we really see the potential not just for validating what the soviets are doing but actually turning a program into a successful operational intelligence collection capability um an actual human spy right. capability and so that was Scanate in 1972, and then the Army started really getting, getting involved in it with their Gondolawish program in 1977. And so there's this period of time in the early to mid-1970s where there's a transition from looking at not just what the Soviets are doing, but saying, how can we use this right. offensively against adversaries? And so there's three, there's three real benefits. Right, I mean, you can, you can obviously see what makes sense, why, why if this works, how it can be such a positive thing for American intelligence? Yes, there's three. There's three things that 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 even even the most um, pessimistic person about this program had to at least say. Well, maybe we should at least look into this. Uh, first of all, it's cheap, right? So you're talking about a handful of people that you're giving some basic queuing information to. They're sitting at a table, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about how they do this. But they're sitting at a table, and they're if if it's true, they're able to remote view and provide. Uh, spying capability, so it's it's cheap. It's the people who you're hiring. It's just a human uh, paycheck. Um, two, it's passive. Your enemy can't tell that you're collecting intelligence against them. It's completely done uh, in the dark. It's completely passive. But in Stranger Things, they can tell when they're being looked at if they have the power themselves. So. And there's one report that said the Chinese actually, in in a very uh, a very secure environment when in a testing and laboratory environment that they were able to identify uh, one time that somebody was remote viewing. There's no evidence to prove that, but there is one time anyway. I'll just throw that out there that, that there is this, but, but generally the sense was um, 
it's 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 passive, uh, and and the third the third real benefit to this is there's no defense against it, so you can't you can't put up walls or whatever because extrasensory perception this remote viewing capability it either exists right and you buy into it or it doesn't but if you buy into remote viewing as existing then we can't defend against but you it. can't build a faraday cage around there's no <laughs> there's no skiffs anymore there's no ways out. yeah hanging glass right. glass room or whatever uh, and so when you when you when you think about that and you think about all the places that you would love to get a spy but that because you can't get them in the country you can't get the, the access um you're never going to be able to get that information. But imagine here, somebody puts in front of you as the intelligence community something that uh, is being scientifically rigorously looked at. There's real potential in it. And you have the ability to say, suppose that we could actually put a spy in the Kremlin and not have to worry about a placement and access of, of passports and, and, and paying that person all the money and how you get the information in and out. You simply have a person sit in a room and collect intelligence. Why? Well, Clearly, there's, there's backing, right? The IC, the, you talked about the congressional support, talked about from the Secretary of Defense, uh, even some cases from the White House. So we know the Soviets are doing it. We need to find out what they're up to. We need to see if this, we can make this operational ourselves. But this lasts decades long, and I can't imagine it would ever last that long unless there was some kind of a take from it. And you kind of hinted at this, that there were some successes. Now, I'm very skeptical of this as well I'll talk about in a second. But first, you promised me when we, when we, when we kind of scheduled this that you were gonna come out and give me success stories from this remote viewing, and I wanna hear what they might be. Yeah, so the, the, the first thing I will say is, is that one of the big things in all the reports on this is um, it's not always right, uh, and also it should be taken in with other types of intelligence. So for instance, one of the ways that you could validate We'll talk about this in the session that we're going to read over in a minute. One of the ways that you could actually validate in some cases whether a person was telling the truth was they would do drawings of what they see. So for our Soviet military power books in the 1980s, one of the things that DI did is whenever we get a spy who came back and couldn't get a picture of, for instance, a new tank or a ship, we would have them work with an artist to, to, to render a drawing or whatever of what it looked like. Well, here you have a person who is through remote viewing actually supposedly at a building or in a building and they can draw certain things and so um, in some cases their drawings are way off um, they're drawing things that are completely proven to be wrong and you can prove they're wrong through overhead imagery or through having a person you can test this right so you can say give them a coordinate and say it's a person's house and it could be your house and you know what your house looks like you know how many floors it is you know where the stairs are and suddenly they're saying, well, it's a one-floor room out in the country, you know, and you're like, well, it's a four-story yeah. apartment in or townhouse in the city. But in some cases, these are absolutely right. Uh, there's a person who draws a crane at a new construction, uh, a new Soviet uh, uh, plant, and he says, this is going to be what a crane looks like here, and you know that this is like a weapons production facility because why else would they be building this crane? He actually draws the crane. A month later, here's a picture of the crane, and it's precisely accurate. Sometimes it's wrong, but the scary and eerie thing is that for the times that it's wrong, um, it's sometimes right as well. So, um, in uh, I think it's 1979, a uh, remote viewer says, I get this really, really strange thing. I'm seeing a U.S. ship getting struck by missiles, and there's high U.S. casualties, and it's, it's off the coast um, it's, in the, it's in a waterway near a desert, and I'm just really worried that something's going to happen. Well, two days later, the USS Stark is hit. 
uh, a Tu-22 Russian bomber crashes, and nobody can find it, right? So they go to the remote viewers and they say, where is it? Well, they were able to pinpoint within three miles specifically where this bomber had crashed. And incidentally, the first successful ever remote viewing was a U.S. plane was lost. And they managed to pick, pinpoint where the U.S. plane were crashed within 11 miles of where it was. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. We talked about the TU-22, the backfire, I believe is what it is, right? Is it the backfire? Yeah. That had been searched for for quite some time by traditional means yep. and they walked in and the remote viewer was able to basically find it like right away yeah within within 11 miles and mm. the, where we were looking was more than 80 miles off from where we we had originally thought that it was going to be a spy case here so uh hey we think there you know we, we want to know if there's any spies in south africa and the remote viewer says yeah well I, I, i'm seeing this person i'm almost certain he's a spy he's a kgb officer and one of the really suspicious things that I'm seeing him use is it looks like a calendar or a, a calculator. And I think that calculator is actually what he's using to encrypt and decrypt and communicate with. So sure enough, they go and they, they arrest this guy because there's other concerns about this person. So they're able to arrest him and they can't find the calculator. But they find out that one of his associates had been holding the calculator for him and it wasn't an actual communications um, device. Drug boat in 1988 uh, was was identified. One of my favorite ones from this is um, there was a U.S. government fugitive uh, who had been committing crimes. A U.S. civil servant. They couldn't find him anywhere, so they go and they have a DIA remote viewer, um, you know, do his analysis. And he says, "Pretty sure he's out west. He's in northern Wyoming, and he's at a campground." Well, they thought it was so kooky that they didn't even go check. Well, a couple couple weeks go by, they still can't find him. So they're like, well. It's called the local sheriff. Have the local sheriff go out and just check this campground. Sure enough, there's this fugitive who had been at this campground in Wyoming. Um, so the remote viewers get called into Congress to do a test in front of all of these, these congressional members. And one of the congressmen gives a, uh, a, a location, um, a latitude and longitude, and says, well, fine, let's see, what, let's see what you can really do. What is this? And the remote viewer says, well, it's in the desert. I'm smelling chemicals and something really, really dangerous. And there's a lot of security here. And by the way, there's a huge plant nearby. Uh, I can't tell you much more than that, but it's a suspicious building. With all the security here, it's a suspicious building. Well, it was Libya's chemical and biological weapons plant. Now, the thing is, the thing is, and, and, and when I'm reading this stuff, right, there's, the, there's the, the rational part of me that says, these all have to be explained some way, right? There has to be some way to say, well, that plane that we found, right, the U.S. plane that we found 11 miles or whatever from where it was, 
Um, maybe the remote viewer knew because of the type of plane that it was, where we had the most number of those planes flying out of, and where if you were able to drive where their planes were located, what was their most usual flight path, and maybe you knew the weather patterns, right? right? And so you could, by throwing a dart, right, come up with potentially this plane crashing at this site on this day, and, and by sheer you know happenstance and luck and your basic kind of background, you might be able to have gotten that. Um, but the people, the actual reviewers who came in, unbiased and impartial, scientists and panels who came in and looked at this, um, while they were able to say many of the cases that we're seeing are coming up with false information, some of it is wrong, it is certainly not a, a form of information that you can rely on just unilaterally to say this is right. They all also came up and said, uh, we can't explain it. It's beyond chance. It's, it's beyond any form of chance that these things could be happening with, with these people. Uh, uh, it's beyond coincidence. Right. I mean, because there's two things that you could try to kind of attack this. One is we know how like the psychic down the street, you know, $10 for a palm reading kind of reads what you're wearing and what you say to them. They try to get information from you and they make wild ass guesses. And sometimes they're right, and most of the time they're wrong, but when they're right, you're like, oh my God. And then there's a whole chance idea is that if I look at something or if I guess at something random, I'm gonna be right some of the time just because I'm blindly guessing, and, but this is beyond that level. And I, wanna, I went and I researched this, and, and there are a bunch of panels that were brought together to do independent research of this, but the most in interesting one to me was in 1984. And this was a scientific panel of outside experts. There's three scientists. And one was uh, Dr. Donald Kerr, who was the director of Los Alamos in that laboratory. So this guy's a nuclear physicist, not a someone who believes in ghosts. Dr. Fred Zacherson, who was a professor of physics at Caltech, and also on the Jasons. He was part of the Jason team. If you know what that is, it was a group of government, well, non-governmental scientists who were brought together to advise the government. And then there was Dr. Ross Addy, who was a neuropsychologist for, uh, researcher for VA. So these are a doctor, two high-level scientists, two physicists who were brought together to determine this. And you would think that they would come back and say, this is all a bunch of bullshit. But they actually came back and said, number one, the implications are revolutionary. Right? That's, these are the actual words. They said the merits continued funding in the national interest, evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence, basically, like you're saying, no chance, the lack of physical model does not preclude existence. So just because we can't see it and prove it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And they're recommended to initiate a five to 10 year program to involve additional labs and even spread this larger than it actually was. So that's, that's the good news. Now in this same report, and I'm pulling this from CIA, there was an example that I, I found kind of, I chuckled at because it shows, to me it shows where some people might be throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. And in this case, uh, I guess a remote viewer was told that there was a building 14.8 kilometers southwest of the St. Louis Arch. Identify what it was. And so the reviewer came back and said, okay, well, uh, it's a somber, quiet, official feel. People go to this place with a common purpose to seek knowledge. They are interested and curious about the building and its history. The history of this building deals with old colonial America. The building is located on flat land like a farm and has something to do with a man. This man, dead now, wore a uniform and was a historical military leader. The building was this man's home. This man was a leader and was approximately five foot, 10 inches tall, had black hair and a beard, was heavy set and stone faced. I'm thinking about the above information. 
I see a picture in my mind of U.S. Grant. Okay, so pretty specific at the end, right? It wasn't just a rando, it's U.S. Grant. Now, he may, he or she, may have known that southwest of the St. Louis Arch, maybe he visited the Grant Farm, which is exactly what we're talking about here. So what did he get right? Well, Grant was 5'8", not 5'10". So I went and I looked that up. Uh, I can't imagine you could ever call Grant heavyset. He was relatively thin. Um, certainly looks at someone going here for knowledge. I wouldn't say you'd do that, go here for knowledge. It's certainly not colonial, right? This farm was built actually in the mid-1800s. Got the military leader, but not as a president, but did call it U.S. Grant. So there's stuff that's right. There's stuff that's wrong. But straight up said U.S. Grant, right? It wasn't kind of joking. But my my kind of cynical self says, well, might have visited as a kid. Then there is, so we got the success, the kind of success, and then the falling on your face failure, which is a 1990 report uh, where they, they wanted a group of remote viewers to identify the Nazca lines. And you've seen these pictures of these in Peru, basically from overhead reconnaissance or from up high. They're like drawings in the um, the wilderness and in the kind of the landscape drawings of people and like waterways and all this stuff. And the report comes back and it says this, this one viewer had many accurate perceptions of the site and no discernible incorrect ones, which I read. And I'm like, wow, it's going to be all right. Except the next sentence says that the person identified water. And this is essentially in a barren desert. There's no water anywhere. And then later on said at one point perceived grapes and actually drew a bunch of grapes. There's no grapes. This is not a vineyard. This is a barren area with drawings of people and other things like that. Um, but they found ways to actually explain this away by saying the original pages of information about the Nazca lines that they kind of, the, the scientists had read beforehand, also had another page on Italian grapes. And so somehow the remote viewers had read the minds of the scientists instead of actually the feedback site. So they found lots of ways to explain this away. So while we're in this position of some things work, some things maybe work, some things don't work, is I think is a great time to kind of walk people through what one of these sessions looks like. Um, and this is the promised dramatic reading where I'm gonna play, this is real, we're not making this up. So this is actually a real transcript from a remote viewing session from 1981 where I'm going to be the actual DIA personnel. Um, Greg is going to be the remote viewer, uh, and we're gonna give you the exact transcripts. This is exactly what one of these sessions look like. This will be a remote viewing session for 0900 hours, 12 June, 1981. This will be a pre-session briefing to the remote viewer. At this time, I will show you a photograph on which the target building is indicated. There is an arrow pointing to the target building, and I am now pointing to the target building. Your mission will be to gain access to this building during normal working hours at the building today, 12 June. Once your perceptions become clear on the interior of the building, I'm going to direct you to a very specific area within the building about which I will have a very particular questions. Okay. You can see the building then. That what we're talking about? Upper left building. All right. Do you have any questions pertaining to your mission this morning? No. All right. At this time, you have 25 minutes to prepare yourself for this morning session. Relax and concentrate now. Relax and focus your attention solely and completely on the building indicated in the photograph I have shown you. Focus now on the target building and describe the interior to me. 
I get one flight of steps going up to a, a double entrance door under an overarch. Inside the door is a red tile, hard squares of red tile. See an entrance foyer straight ahead. Looks like um, some kind of large opening of some kind. It's like there's big um, circular staircase. All right. Remembering now to focus solely and completely on the target building, providing raw perceptive data. Move now to the area designated as the redacted. Move now to redacted and describe it to me. Okay, just just a minute. Mm. Looks like some kind of open balcony, and there's a single single door going into um, a room that's wider than than it is long. It's white. There's a, it's it's like two sections of a room, almost like two rooms. Table to the left along the wall, and there's safes along the right. Looks funny. Looks funny looking safes. They're like short boxes, double doors. There's another door, seems to be very sophisticated communications equipment. Focusing now on daylight, normal working hours, 12 June, 1981. Narrowing your focus to the time window working hours, 12 June, 1981. Describe the activity in Redacted to me. I got uh, two women are sitting at a, uh, a table, like the counter, typing into um, a machine, punching out some kind of tape. The tapes are mm, being put into a basket-like. That's, that's essentially all that's going on in the front. Describe the women to me. One is, mm, neither's very young. They're both fairly old. Um, mid to late 40s they have a very severe stern look on their faces dark brown black hair uh one's heavy set one isn't the one that isn't is about 130 pounds the heavy set ones maybe 165 170 uh very heavy uh heavy set ones got a gold fillings gold fillings that's unusual and the younger one of the she's wearing she's wearing glasses both wearing wedding rings on the right fingers, the right hand, uh, no jewelry. You described an older and younger in a heavy set and lighter. Match these descriptions for me. The younger is the lighter and the heavy set one is the older. Are there other personnel in the area? Correct. Um, there's, oh, I see, there's a, there's a younger man and uh, just a minute. Younger man and older man in the uh, in the radio area. The uh, younger man is more like a technician of some kind. The older man is the operator. There's more than one operator, but he's not there right now. He's doing something. I don't know where he's at. All right. Stand so you can observe what's going on and prepare yourself for introductions. Okay. Just a minute. Okay. Got it. Listen very carefully to the following instructions and do not proceed until told to do so. Scanning the individuals who work redacted, you will be going to each one of them without reporting to me. You will be going to each one of them and touching them on the shoulder. With each one of them, you will determine the most likely candidate who might like to work for us. When you proceed, you will go to each individual without reporting to me until you have completed the entire mission of determining which individual is the most likely to work for us. Prepare yourself and proceed now. Oh, okay. Report. Uh, I get uh, good response from only one. It's from the older guy, the radio operator. He's uh, His response seems to be more of a reality than the rest. Break this out for me. Feeling of he has a better understanding for what's going on in the world. He knows that um, idealism isn't, uh, isn't, isn't necessary. 
um, younger younger to women and men are still they still have too many ideals. Also, uh, I perceive their their families aren't aren't with them. Feel pressure about life mates. Older woman is just uh, I, I get an intense feeling of stupidity. Uh, lacks required intelligence for for decision. Older man will will do this though. Describe in detail the radio operator. He's uh, clean shaven, 195 pounds, 5'9", five, 5'8". Five, uh, hair is thinning just a bit on top. Age 46, 47. Light frame glasses, just a minute. Hold on, trying to look at his face. Has, has kind of a square chin. Full lower lip, thin upper lip. Nose previously broken. Small lump like on his nose. Very, very heavy brows, brown eyes. Hair is dark. Believe he has identifying scar on his upper right hand. I just sense that I, I can't see it. Spend some time now with the radio operator. Without reporting to me, involve yourself in him and his life. Do this now. Okay. Okay. Report. He's uh, married, but his wife isn't with him. He's very dissatisfied with his life. Has no, uh, f- has no future. Drinking problem. Very alcoholic. Tense feeling for uh, frustration for some reason. Believe it's a frustration for missed desires or something believe he's like to um to begin all over again if he could thought there's kids but i don't have a close feel for these kids they're they're teens or or young teens he doesn't have any real affection for his family believe alcohol is his problem may uh, feeling he may not have the particular strength and character necessary to perform for meeting any of the tasks we may give him just just a minute i get I'm getting the impressions of a one-time, big-time, one-type person. Probably can give, uh, can be convinced of, of, of the one shot, but I think he lacks the character for long-term, uh, long-term work. Um, frightening to him. What is the one thing which he most desires which we could provide to him? Money and a new identity. Describe the raw data which makes you say this. I see a... I see this man for which nothing appears to have ever been accomplished. He's very frustrated, primarily with himself. He has no real affection for anything or anyone. He, um, he feels with, uh, with the money and a new name, freedom to start again, he could recapture what he failed in before. He could be happy. What is the one thing which he fears may happen to him most? Going back home. Break this out for me. Mm. I get a feeling that home is the seat of the frustration. Going back home is like him crawling into a hole. He's, I also get a feeling he's already into something here. I just, I just get that. It's like a secretive thing. Explore and report. I sense he's got a, he's got a relationship with um, know, a woman that even his, uh, his own people aren't aware of, and he's trying to, trying to keep that, maintain the secrecy. I think this is a big concern, fear for him, um, if his superiors know that he'll be shipped home. I have no further questions concerning the target area or the individuals who work there. However, I would like to provide you a few minutes to explore and comment on those areas which you feel most important to today's mission. I will wait. Just one more comment on him. He uh, he respects the good life. Uh, someone talks to him. They should uh, d- they should do so under the best of circumstances. Like um, good food, good wine. Make him feel like like this is common, normal. That it's not an abnormal thing. Uh, that's that's all I got. 
all right? Take a look around now and remember everything that you have perceived, that you have understood, and that you know. Focus your attention now back on my voice in the room here. Move your arms and move your legs and take a few deep breaths. And let's prepare now to draw that which you remember concerning your session. Okay, now I'm jumping out of this. Now is the point at which they would draw everything that they saw. And there's a long explanation on the transcript how he explains what he's drawing as he's drawing. So we're going to pick back up after he finished drawing everything. Um, and the, this is where the uh, DIA member goes, okay, how do you feel about the session? I feel the session was really good, like super. I feel like I was actually in the room. This is the best kind of feeling you can have, I guess. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add? No, that's it. Um, on the other people, I would stay away from the young man and the younger woman because they're very idealistic. And the older woman is just, honestly, believes she's just really too dumb to know any different than what she's doing. Okay. That's it. So I, this wasn't done just to get our acting chops uh, off the ground. I think there's a lot in here, and we kind of talked about this, that really jumps out as, well, on one hand, you could argue that this is just somebody who's really, really good at making shit up on the fly. But there are certain things that are potentially testable about what this person says and things that you probably, I don't care how good you are. It'd be very difficult to just come up with these details very quickly. Yeah, so first, the drawings are something that, that with overhead imagery, you could actually, if you knew roughly where you were looking, you could actually do overhead imagery and see, is there a building there like the ones that, that this person drew and recognized? Um, through signals intelligence, you could, are, are, we, are we picking up a communications um, facility or something around that location? Is there something we should be concerned about? And you might be able to find that. In the long run, if you started actually trying to place a source uh, to be able to, because clearly one of the things that comes out of this that you see is the potential to recruit a potential asset. As you're going and you're doing your initial uh, uh, search in that area, you may be able to validate some stuff there. So there are some things, even if it's not imminent, there are some things that you can do to check the credibility and reliability of this information. There's some of the drawings, I mean, not only from this report, but from the, the CI reports, some of the drawings are dead on. I mean, there is, and some of them are completely ridiculous. And I think that's one of the things where if like, if you focus on the ridiculous, it's basically like, you know, putting something in from a five-year-old and being like, draw this in crayons. On the other hand, they're literally drawing radar dishes when you ask them to look at a radar array remotely and don't tell them it's a radar array that you're looking at. It's dead on. And it's, it's again, very easy to dismiss this stuff. And I'm sure there were people who tried. I mean, were there people, members of Congress, people within the IC that tried to kill this program because of how strange it was? Because talk about, this is a time period, certainly in the 70s, after Church and Pike, or in the 80s, when you know a lot of the budget was going to actually fighting forces in the military, where looking for programs to cut would have, you know, this would be a neon lights, cut me, cut me. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you, there, there were. One of them was not only a director uh, for INSCOM, but then became the director of DIA and uh, his, his Lieutenant General Soyster. And he, he effectively killed the program at INSCOM. And when he came to DIA as the director, and uh, Jack, uh, uh, Jack Verona, the, our, our director of s and comes in and briefs him for the first time 
on the program there. He says, my gosh, I tried to kill it at INSCOM and it's still alive. I can't get rid of this thing. And, and there was enough support, congressional support and such, that, that, that it stayed alive throughout his tenure despite his opposition to it. I think that's the interesting thing is, is the level of support for the program actually overcame like the director, a three-star general, the director trying to effectively kill the, the program while, while he was there. Um, now, I will say, if you're one of the people who, who looks at this and says, this is hogwash, uh, you know, there have been programs out there that get a certain level of congressional support. Um, and, and maybe the program stays alive because you get a couple of, of very proactive uh, people from Congress who are pushing the program. There certainly were people in Congress who were advocates for this program. So it's hard to say the back channel dealings of something like that. But I think that, that, that if you read, there's, there's, a, there's a series of reports that came out in a final like document that was actually, the intro for it is written by Secretary of Defense Cohen who introduces all of the documents in this in this archival report and he says look we really should have industry looking at this more because there's just too much in here look former secretary of defense I, I helped oversee the program when i was in leadership like there's too much here to simply um ignore and even though we're not going to continue the program it ends in 1995 even though we're not going to continue the program within the intelligence community it's worth bearing out um for the private sector to be looking at this because so if we say in human, in human intelligence that a 50% success rate for sources is, is really good, right? Like if we start getting 50% with human sources, like that's, that's something we should, we should be happy about. Well, you know, we were getting higher than that with this program. Uh, there were 504 specific missions where this information was used requiring 2,865 sessions. 17 of the, their customers who got this information came back for more, 89.5% return rate on customers getting this information. Multiple customer feedback. A lot of the customers didn't know that this was coming from remote viewing. Mm. You know, you're going to get a report and it says a source has said the following things, um, and you can provide feedback to the intelligence. Is it first of all, is it accurate, and two, does it have intelligence value? So the two things are saying somebody can something can be very accurate, but still have no value whatsoever. And some of the reporting from this had no value. So a person could put themselves in a room and see stuff going on that you may be able to corroborate as true and yet have no value whatsoever. But in 70% of the cases from one specific customer, they came back with uh, there having been a direct correlation to, to viable intelligence that was actually usable. Uh, over a 10-year period, 65.4% of the tasks were returned with having intelligence value. And these, again, these aren't people who are seeing remote viewing or anything that indicates, like, how they got the information. The information is out there, and the customers are coming back. So, again, the, the thing that I find troubling is, 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 is the bias, right, the personal bias. Like, this stuff is, it's the stuff of Hollywood. It's the stuff of books. And, by the way, it was canceled, right? So, in 1995, the programs were ultimately canceled. Um, a report was put out. CIA uh, uh, was given the, pro the program in, uh, in 1985. They had a report done. And while the report acknowledges that uh, it can't be chance, right? The same thing that all the other reports said. Cannot be chance. It's not happenstance. This stuff is happening. They nevertheless say, but we've kind of reached the, the, the apex of what we can do within this program right now. 
And given all the cuts in the intelligence community and what was then a growing peace dividend post-Cold War, um, we just don't know that there is a lot to this program anymore. One of the things we find out, too, that's kind of suspicious is two weeks, before the, two weeks after the program was cut, a book was put out to the public for the first time. So putting on the, the, the kind of like uh, uh, squirrely hat here, you know, do you kill the program before something goes out to the public saying the intelligence community has a paranormal program that's been going on for 20 years? You would think one of the reviewers would have predicted the book coming out and been able to prepare the intelligence community for that. I just don't think right. that was one of the priority right. intelligence requirements, unfortunately. Well, the problem, I mean, if you look at the, the most popular kind of pop culture that's come out of this is The Men Who Stare at Goats, the book and the movie, which portrays it as not just this program, that, that wasn't about remote viewing, that was about the telekinesis side of it, as a bunch of new age bumbling fools who were, you know, given money because they they killed quote unquote killed a goat that had been shot so many times by special forces and the medics to try to repair it that it you know was going to die if you blew hard on it let alone shot mine bullets into it so it does give a kind of a bad taste in the mouth and then of course like you mentioned things like firestarter and stranger things makes it sound like it's this kind of evil nefarious plan i mean that, that's an interesting question i mean you know who were who was involved in you know this testing? I mean, was it was it kids that had special ability? Were there a bunch of was there one through eleven? You know, were these people who were pulled out of CIA? Were these prisoners? Were these who who was used for this stuff? How do you volunteer for this program? So of course, the the frightening thing is if you look at like um, uh, humanitarian reports coming out of the Soviet Union. I used to have a big book of humanitarian assessments out of the Soviet Union and everything. And you find like they were they were using human guinea pigs on some really really bad psychological type of testing, the type of stuff that you actually would see in movies. And it's certainly given the fact that with the Church Committee happening around all this time and some of the things like on LSD testing were happening, you would potentially look at programs like this and say, well, it certainly has the the uh, the feeling that you might be doing human testing. Um, in fact, there was so much concern about uh, the potential for somebody looking at this and saying they're using human guinea pigs that if anything they went they went overboard. Uh, what I found throughout all of the documents and the archives is multiple reports of uh, general counsels doing reviews of the program. Um, everybody who was used signed full disclosure saying, I know what I'm doing, I know what this is for. Um, there was, as part of the program right from the beginning, they said no use of drugs or anything that could um, alter a person's mind or perception of things. So it all has to be done uh, through just sitting down like, like in Stranger Things, you know, she's put into the big pool of water mm -hmm. with, with all these probes on her head and everything like that. That isn't what happened here. Um, the biggest thing that I would say happened was an actual fight between DI and INSCOM on the fact that INSCOM wanted to leave open on paper it being called human testing just so that there would be an extra layer of review of the program so that nobody could ever then come and say, wow, bad things were happening. Uh, DIA said there's no reason to have all of those different people having visibility into a special access program when the general counsel is already looking at this and seeing from the very beginning there's never been a, a issue of any sort of testing or anything 
um, done to people where they weren't cognizant of what they were doing. And so therefore, we're risking ac special access programs by allowing additional right. people to see it. So the, the real debate was, do you acknowledge that even though we're not doing anything in terms of human testing, we're going to put it out there just for extra visibility, or do you keep it as a SAP program? And that was a very real debate. But all of the reports coming back actually say that there was never, ever in this program anything associated with actual human testing or any of the type of things that you would see in the human rights reports um, from the Soviet Union. Well, you may not be able to answer this question. You may not know the answer. You may may still be classified. Why didn't we round all these boys up to find Bin Laden after him being missing for 10 years? Why? It seems like if you can find a plane that crashed or if you can find a Soviet submarine or if you can find a remote view anywhere in the world, you could find Abbottabad, Pakistan, or you could target Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or someone else. Post 9-11, when you're looking for an individual in the middle of nowhere, this seems like where you bring the gang, the band back together and say, all right, let's find these guys. Um, obviously, if we're still doing it right now, you can't say anything about it, but maybe there is a reason we didn't do it and you know that. Well, so, so let me just say, I don't know, right? So uh, when, I say, when I say I don't know why we didn't, it is legitimately because I don't, I don't know. It seems kind of intuitive if you look at the successes here. You could put on the hat either way here and say, you know, maybe we did or, or um, if we didn't, that's an indicator of the fact that it was all, like there were, there were things hokey about this to begin with. You know, one thing I haven't talked about is you had a team of these remote viewers and not all of them were looked at equally. There was a group, uh, a couple of, of, of the, the remote viewers who were called the witches because they played with tarot cards and they were trying to do um, psychic readings and they were doing a, really, a whole lot of really kooky stuff that, that the rest of the remote viewers says, said these aren't real remote viewers. They, 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 and they're making the program look really bad. And you had people who said, well, I'm bored. I don't have anything to do today, so I'm going to remote view um, some Hollywood actress's house today, right? And we're doing things that were, that were in a couple of cases, unprofessional. And they're in the record, so I'm not saying anything that isn't, hasn't already been uh, disclosed. And some of those things got a negative reputation as well. So if, if now you stand in today's shoes, or, or even 2001 shoes, and you look back and you say, Fine. Well, whatever in the 1960s and 70s might have been kind of okay, but now that's just kooky. And then you read about a few of the people who were doing pretty kooky stuff. Um, maybe you then, after 9-11, you look at this and say, well, it's not worth opening that, that Pandora's box. Um, what I will tell you is that some of the findings from the programs um, are still being looked at, but they are being looked at in the realm of physics. Right. So particles, particle acceleration, those types of things, those were some of the things that the Soviets and we for a little bit within the programs here were looking at in terms of how do you explain these phenomena, right? Is particle acceleration or, or the fact that in some cases, if you have a particle and you split it and you, you then do something to one of the particles, the, the other one reacts kind of the same way. And so some of the things that were being looked at in these programs was how can you explain those split particles reacting a certain way, well, is that explainable in terms of remote viewing or telekinesis right. or any of these things? Well, if you discount now, you say, well, we understand that has nothing to do with telekinesis because we, we have no proof telekinesis is real. And we can't find any association with like remote viewing. But we found some pretty interesting things through our research on particle analysis that still is worth looking into. 
And so there are still scientific areas that this is, is being looked at, but it's in the realm of pure science with respect to physicists, you know, at the MITs of the world, at right. the Caltechs, and not in the realm of the, uh, the defense intelligence agency. Yeah, I mean, if you think about things like the multiverse and, and all that, the, there are certainly physics principles that might make some sense in all of this. But I, I think to me, you know, whenever anyone asks me about like MKUltra, um, 99% of that's a horrible program where there were human testing on unwitting subjects and it was things they shouldn't have done. But the 1% is we found a lot about how the human brain works. That seems to be a really positive impact from this program as well to where the serious study, and this is really what you mentioned that the Soviets and the Czechs were trying to do in the first place, was to kind of apply this to real understanding of, of humans where we came out of this being able to understand how kind of the how we think, how we operate, how we work, how psychology works at a, not a parapsychology level, but at a full-fledged neuropsychology level. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why they put all of this information out. So I, I think that one of the reasons may have been, you know, you put all this out there because if people don't have access to the actual research and the actual materials, it's easy to say, why was the IC doing all this kooky work? But I think part of it, too, is to say, look, uh, it behooves science to look at this and to see what was being done for all of this time because there's still a lot to be gleaned. And that was one of the things that, that Secretary of Defense Cohen wrote in his introduction. Like, we want to we want to turn this out there because there's there's much to be gleaned. We have, you know, this was, Soviets were doing it, you know, through some pretty nasty means, but then we were doing it, you know, legitimately. And there was a lot to be, this was the first time that human beings really in the history of humanity put a full weight of science and analysis into kind of the neurotic or the, the neuro um, psyches of people and what the mind is limited to and its bandwidth and whether or not some of this stuff was explainable or not. And so there were real findings from this. And, and I think that if you were to go out and look at some of the work on, on the validity of hypnosis now, and some of the um, pharma, pharma psychology or pharma, pharmacology um, research that's done on different drugs that can help people with mental disorders and stuff. Some of that comes out of the le these types of lessons learned that you do, and, and you know maybe you don't find how you can use the force, but you do find maybe a way of developing a new drug that helps somebody who has a real uh, debilitating uh, mental issue and you can help them out that way. We still have not discredited completely being able to use the force, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold on to that because one day maybe we will. Um, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on SpyCast. I mean, I think this is, this is one of these fun, yet very serious. I mean, this was something that, again, millions of dollars and millions of rubles was put into. Serious Cold War implications involved in this, but in hindsight, we can look back at this and chuckle a little bit because it is a little kooky, but it had a really interesting effect. And anyone out there who wants to know if we use this program again against bin Laden and crew, there's something called the Freedom of Information Act, and I applaud you if you use it on this. Uh, that could be interesting to find out. You might not find out for 20 years, but be fine to know. So, Greg, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.